morning again, and I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter, be continuing our journey through this uh, warm, practical epistle from Peter to the church. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verse 13 to 17, and I've titled this, The Believer's Response, I'm sorry, How to Worship God in your salvation, how to worship God in your salvation. I changed the title and forgot to change it on my notes. How to worship God in our salvation. Let me pray before we begin. Lord, this is your word. This is your beloved, awesome, inspired, efficacious word. Help us to hear what you have to say in it. Help us to be mindful of the riches and the amazing blessings that are ours in Christ. Help us to have ears to hear. and Help us to walk in obedience. Help us to walk uh, in a way that is like you. Amen. So this is our first, fifth look at First Peter. Our fifth look and we're just halfway through chapter 1, and already we come to a transition that really wouldn't happen until the middle of the book if we were reading one of Paul's books. And that is the transition from indicative to imperative, and you're saying, what is that? Well, if you're a parent, or if you've ever had a parent, which I'm sure is most everyone here, you've, you've heard this before. You're told to do something. You're told to clean your room. And what does every child say? Why? Why should I? At which your parent says, either because I'm your father or because I said so, followed with, now do as I say. And that's a pattern. There's indicative, there's a statement of fact, because I said so, or because I'm your father or mother, followed by an imperative that has a direct relationship to the indicative. Now do what I say. And Peter's been giving us facts and information. He's been reminding us what God has graciously done for every Christian, for all believers, for the church and the corporate body of all those who stand in Christ Jesus by by saving her. He has made looking at our salvation to be a very interesting study because he's allowed us to see it from several different perspectives. We first saw the prerogatives of each divine person of the Trinity in saving us, how our salvation was according to the foreknowledge of the Father, and it was applied through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it was achieved by and for the Son. And we looked, and then we we looked through a series of different lenses, the lens of the future, looking at our salvation from the lens of the future, in that we have a great inheritance awaiting us, the inheritance itself being reserved in heaven until we receive it. And until then, it's being powerfully guarded by God. And then we looked at our salvation through the lens of the present, that our salvation has innately changed us and has made us new creations and that we can know that because of the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit of God in us, the chief of those being joy, which Peter 
talked about. And we looked at how in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the absolutely most pitiful conditions, the Christian can and the Christian does rejoice because Christ is with you. And despite not seeing him with your physical eyes, Peter says you know him and you love him. And you are encouraged to know that God is dwelling in you and he stands with you. And you can know that because you can see, you can look around and see the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life. And then the last time we looked at First Peter, we looked at how God's grace and salvation was something that absolutely consumed the prophets. And we can see that as they tried to piece together bit by bit the different aspects of their prophecies. And they were, they were there trying to figure it out. We saw that how salvation consumed the Spirit. Not, not that the Holy Spirit was curious about salvation, but it was a passion of His. And you can see that in, in John chapter, in the uh, upper, court, upper room discourse, that the Spirit's prerogative is to take the things concerning Christ and to declare them and to provide testimony. The Spirit is obsessed with preaching and testifying of Christ. And that was evident in his inspiration of the scriptures. The salvation through Christ is what the Spirit inspired in the scriptures. And it also, it, salvation consumed the apostles as they poured out their lives as a drink offering, as it were, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ to whom the Old Testament prophets wrote about. And then lastly, as a, as a footnote, as it were, we saw that salvation was even a constant preoccupation of even the angels. Even the angels. They look at the unity, we ha- the fact that we are united to Christ, and they marvel. And being the holy angels being sinless, they marvel at what it means to be forgiven. And... Perhaps even the demons who were not told that they are even capable of repenting and believing. That salvation is not offered to the whole angelic realm. So perhaps even the demons marvel. Maybe they're jealous at the reality that we have in our salvation. It was something that the angels crinked their neck as it were. They're they're longing to look into. They had a desire to understand our salvation. So having spent 12 short verses bringing to our minds the great privilege it is to be in Christ, to be saved in Christ, Pastor Peter is now at that point where he's turning to what our position in Christ ought to produce. He's turning to the instruction, to the imperative, to the application. And he gives us the proper response to being saved. He's going to tell us what we're expected to do because of the salvation that you and I enjoy in Christ. He's going to begin by, what in the text we're looking at today, he's going to begin by instructing our response to God. And in the next several uh, sermons, we'll look at how, we'll look at other relationships and see how our salvation should affect how we treat one another and then ultimately how we should conduct ourselves. Today, we're looking at how Our salvation should make us respond to God. 
And that's why I've titled it, How to Worship God in Your Salvation. There are three qualities that need to characterize our conduct towards God. Three qualities that we'll see. And even though each quality has a couple little uh, side or assisting thought accompanying it, there, uh, there are three main verbs in the text, three, three qualities that stand out. And each verb has some, uh, some, some little assisting phrases that we'll look at. But three main responses that Peter says that we need to have towards God, three ways to worship God. Verse 13, we will see that you worship God in your salvation by establishing your hope on Christ. Verses 14 to 16, we'll see that you worship God in your salvation by exhibiting holiness. Then in verse 17, we'll see that you worship God in your salvation by exercising honorable conduct. So read along with me as I read our text. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 17. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The first point we look at, the first quality that should mark our worship is the need to establish your hope on Christ. You worship God by establishing your hope on Christ. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of of Christ. Everything that Peter has said up to this point is the basis for this instruction, and it's led us directly to this imperative. Prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope. And so that your English the English tech translation doesn't really bring this out, but fix your hope is the main verb. Fix your hope is the main verb. And so grammatically that tells me that is the predominant focus of this, of this verse. The, to prepare your minds and for action and to keep sober, these are like, they're, they're adjectives. They're functioning as adjectives. And what that tells me is that fixing your hope is like the, the shuttle, the space shuttle going up in the atmosphere. And these two side thoughts, they're like, the Saturn V booster rockets. They are coming alongside the main action. They are assisting. They're filling in some of the, they're coloring in some of the space and they're going to show us how we fix our hope. But fixing your hope is the main idea. So let's look at that first. As sojourners in the world, because of the great realities that we are assured of in Christ, we are to fix our hope 
Not on the present, but on the future. Now, Peter, he's, Peter's already made brief mention of what we have to look forward to. Do you remember? When we looked at the inheritance that we have in Christ, a future absolutely incomparable to anything that we experience in our life right now, and a heavenly inheritance that it doesn't fade away, it doesn't decay, it doesn't lose its value, it can't be stolen, it doesn't touch corruption. You have a portion of the heavenly estate and its riches, and they're being kept for you in heaven. And it is indeed yours because you stand in Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. He looks at you and he sees you as his child, as his son or daughter. And being his child, being his children, you and I have the right to expect an inheritance. And elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit and that that the, the Holy Spirit is the Father's pledge that nothing will take away your inheritance. Nothing will interrupt what God has started in you. There's nothing that can disqualify you from your heavenly inheritance. What God has started in you, He will complete. And there's nothing to take away that gracious gift that has been promised you in Christ. And for that reason, Peter tells us that our inheritance is not just guarded, it is powerfully guarded in heaven, being reserved for each one of you until the day that you receive it, that you are to receive it. And so why does Peter instruct us like this? Well, remember, he's, he's an apostle, but he's also a pastor. And in all likelihood, the people that he's writing to are his former congregants who have been scattered across Asia Minor. Being a pastor who knows his people, Peter is acquainted with the nature of people. He understands that though we're saved, though we are regenerated, though we have had hearts of flesh put in where our hearts of stone were taken out, to use the analogy from Jeremiah we have the tendency to take our eyes off of the good things we've been given. It's, it's part of our human nature. We have a tendency to take our eyes off heaven and off of Christ. And instead, we tend to look at other things. And when the sensations and the troubles and the temptations and of earth get in your face, especially when hardship arrives, because that's what's going on in the, in the lives of Peter's audience, when temptation knocks at the door, whatever it may be, whatever it may be, our gaze shifts from the future to the immediate. And those, the, the objects of what we hope for can be absolutely anything. It can be absolutely anything. And for most people who have walked this earth, that hope would be something like that the rains would come that the harvest will be bountiful, that there would be food on the table, or simply that this child would survive. 
where the last one didn't. In the past hundred years or so, with the massive changes in our culture and the advances of technology and because of the Industrial Revolution, with, with technology and medicine just advancing in leaps and bounds, in most respects, we simply do not hope for the things, we don't hope for survival in the way that most of humanity has until the last century or so. Instead, what we tend to hope for in our complacency, what we tend to hope for is that we get to do the things that we want to do. We hope that our plans don't get messed up. And I confess, though I grew up in the church, I, I've confessed Christ for most of my life. I have to confess that I remembered in my youth why older Christians made such a big deal about heaven. Why, why do the songs go on and on clamoring about heaven? I didn't understand the value of, the, of my inheritance in Christ. Why? Well, because I had joyful and happy times ahead of me. I was not... I did not grasp my own mortality. I did not grasp my own temporalness. I had video games to play, after all. I had movies to watch. I had uh, the most important thing for a child was Saturday morning cartoons. And if you overslept that, I can. Well, that was. I grew up before TiVo and before we had. Okay, rabbit trail. I can remember asking God not to come back until I was an old man. I can remember I can remember hoping that Christ would not return, that I would not be called to heaven until after I had been married, after I had grown up, after I had had children, after I had enjoyed life's joys, luxuries, pleasantries maybe visit other countries. I had things I wanted to do. I hoped my plans weren't messed up. I hoped my plans weren't interrupted. I would have felt cheated if Jesus came back before I, came, before I got to experience everything that life had to offer. Get married, have a successful job, have kids, retire, maybe even grandkids, visit, uh, go vacationing. But Peter says, no, Aaron, because of what God has done for you, and I'm pointing at me, but because of what God has done for you, you ought to respond by fixing your hope on what Christ is bringing you. Not on your life now. And I think that's a good way, that's a good litmus test or a good filter, a good way to determine whether or not we need to repent, whether there are things that we desire whereupon we might feel cheated if Jesus were to come back before that desire was fulfilled. Peter tells us to fix our hope onto this grace, onto this great gift which our Heavenly Father has given us. And there's some interesting details that I think really add some color to the instruction. Peter says we're to completely fix our hope. We're to completely fix our hope on the grace to be revealed. Not partially, but completely, fully, without reservation. 
without equivocation, without doubt, without holding back. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed in Christ. And why do we do this? Well, Peter has reminded us what God has done for us. That's why he began with a therefore. So everything he's instructing us to do is because of what God has done. And when we look at verses 15 and following, I think we can see that the emphasis is not what we get out of being obedient to this. The emphasis is not what we get out of our conformity to this instruction. Peter is instead saying this is how we ought to conduct ourselves towards God because of the grace that he has shown us and is showing us and will show us. Peter is telling us how you and I can worship God in our salvation. So while we concede, yes, there are benefits to being obedient, there are concessions or, uh, benefits to following through with this instruction, the chief being, I think, that we are spared the embarrassment and the disappointment when we have delusions of grandeur and we expect that God is there to fulfill our every whim and desire, and when he doesn't, your faith isn't dashed to pieces. Because that does happen out there in, the, in evangelicalism, in the visible church. That is happening a lot. So you get the benefit that think your, your faith doesn't fall to pieces when you realize you've built up a glass house of expectations. But the purpose... The purpose is so that we can see this is how we worship. We do it completely because this is the worship that he deserves. We don't worship God with paltry effort. You fix your hope. You fix all of your expectations on Christ, on the grace that Christ brings, and you fix it on him completely. That means that we don't, you don't look to yourself. We don't look inward. We don't look to our immediate surroundings to try to find satisfaction. We don't resort to our own strength, as I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that said, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which I always thought was pretty dumb, because if you pull your bootstraps up, you're just equal, not physic. never mind, you get what I'm trying to say. You're not looking at your own strength. You're not looking to your own pursuits. You're not looking to self we do this because it is worship. And when we fix our hope on Christ, we are in essence telling God and we're telling the world, those who see us, that God's character, that his promises to be gracious and good and that his nature, the fact that he will always be there to fulfill his promises, are true and trustworthy. When we conduct ourselves in this manner, our lives are marked by worship. And that's the attitude Noah had when he spent 120 long years building the ark. He, didn't go, he, he couldn't go to Lowe's or Home Depot and get all the supplies he needed. He spent 120 years building that boat while being mocked and ridiculed by his neighbors and his peers. And think about it. At that time, up until that point, there was no record of rain. So 
So people mocked him while he's building a boat in the middle of dry land. Why? Because God's word, God's promises were faithful and true. Noah built that ark and he preached righteousness as an expression of his worship. And that is the attitude of every saint who has walked by faith with an eye for, the, for a heavenly future with God. And the scripture does what? It commends them, all of the saints, for conducting themselves like they were sojourners, like they were pilgrims, like they didn't belong. And funny, that's, that's how Peter starts with this epistle, isn't it? To the elect pilgrims, to the elect sojourners, to the elect aliens chosen by God. Their lives were marked by faith. They stood out from their neighbors, their, from their peers, and time, sometimes even their families. Abraham was called to go out from where? His father's house in Ur of the Chaldees. To go to a land that he had never seen. And we're given the name of Abraham's family, of his brothers. And yet we're told that it was just Abraham and Lot that went out to receive the promise. Not his father, not his brothers. You picture the emotional, picture the emotions. Let, let, Let that conjure up an image in your minds of the emotions of that house when Abraham came in and said, I'm leaving. This inheritance, this, this fleshly inheritance that I have from you, it can't compare to the inheritance that I have in the God who has called me. So see you, Dad. He left his inheritance. He left his family. He left his family's idols behind, and he went out to obey a God that they did not know. That is the picture of every saint. That is the picture of every believer as they hear the call of God to repent and to believe and await Christ. And that's the commendation that Paul gave the Thessalonians. That they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Awaiting from his son, waiting for his son from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1. And until... His son appears. You know what Paul says in Colossians 3? What does he say about our lives? The nature of our union to Christ. Is it something that is visible? Is it something that the world looks at and they get it and they can identify it and it makes sense? No. Paul says your life is hidden with Christ. And one day in the future, it will be revealed to the world. Point being, until that time, it's hidden. And he qualifies that reality by saying that we've, been ra- we've died to the world and we've been raised in him, in Christ. So having an attitude and living consistently with those realities is akin to fixing your hope on Christ. That produces an affirmation that everything God has said he has done, everything that he is doing and everything he said he will do, that it is enough and that it is good and that it is glorious. That expresses an appreciation and a trust and a faith 
for God and his grace. That is a life of worship. That is a life of worship. Living your life, conducting yourself in light of what Christ has done and is doing and will do. That is how you and I worship God as a result of the salvation that God has graciously given us. Now, so that's the main, that's the main focus of, of that point. But I want to draw your attention to some assisting phrases that Peter throws in there. He says, prepare your minds for action and keep sober. Prepare your minds for action and keep sober. To prepare your minds comes from a word used to describe tightening your sash or your belt. It's girding yourself up so that you could move more freely, not get encumbered, which would make sense in the old world since most people wore loose clothing and robes. You know, they didn't have Levi's. Well, there was a Levi, but that was a, that was a man. Um, rabbit trail. Um, you didn't have sewn and hemmed pants. You, most people had robes and gowns. And if you needed to hurry somewhere, you didn't want to trip over your robe. If you were hiking or on unsteady ground, you don't want to trip over your loose flowing cloth. If you're a soldier and if you're in battle, you don't want to be unencumbered or encumbered. You don't want anything to get in the way of defending yourself and striking down the guy who's trying to kill you. So you tuck everything in. You make sure that everything is held securely in its place, that nothing is flapping about. And Peter makes a metaphor out of that, and he applies it by saying, do that with your mind. Do that with your mind. Gird up your minds. Prepare your minds for action. Make your mind snug. Make all your thoughts snug. All the loose parts of your thinking, all the loose parts of your lives, bring them in, cinch them up, and tighten them so that you're not encumbered in your thinking. I think one of the prevailing attitudes of the last several decades has been that of procrastination. You can always... Right? You can always put off today what you can do tomorrow. And often we don't have a plan on how we're going to live our lives, how we're going to conduct ourselves. And I think you can see this a lot clearly in the 20-year-olds today because a lot of them live, expect that they're going to be millionaires by the time they're in their 30s and they're 25, 26, 27. And they're still living at home or still don't have a job. But in three, in three or four years, they'll be millionaires. They'll be well off. still haven't decided what they want to do for work. And this applies in the spiritual realm too, right? There's always, there's plenty of time to read all those books. There's plenty of times to learn all the things I want to do. There's plenty of time to discipline myself and go to the gym later. You know, there's plenty of time to go through that premarital material and learn how to be a better spouse or learn how to be a better parent. There's plenty of time to to do all that fixing up stuff. Plenty of time to take care of the house. I know firsthand the temptation is to put off spending time looking at the Word of God and praying. Having thoughtful reflection, thinking things through. I know what it's like to hear about serious political, serious social concerns 
And I don't know what to think. I don't know how I should respond. What should I say as these, as these concerns are boiling to the top of my Facebook feed or from my friend's lips? I mean, there's, there's stuff i got to do tonight, right? I, well, no, Peter says, no, we need our thinking to be prepared for action. And this is a part of our worship and our salvation. Filtering the trending concerns of the world, having a proper biblical worldview, consulting what the Word of God says, observing issues and arriving at a well-thought-out, Biblical defense, a uh, biblically defensible position, so that we, sh- so that we know how to conduct ourselves, so that we know how to answer our neighbors when they ask, "What does the Bible say about this? What would God say about this?" That's a part of preparing your minds for action. Just as a Roman soldier girding his garb shows himself ready for battle, having our minds prepared, how do we respond to these issues in our culture? How do we respond to these issues even in our own family or in my own heart? How do I respond to them? What does the Bible, what does God say in his scriptures about this particular issue? Have your minds prepared. This is a part of your worship to God. Because when you have that, when you have a good Christian biblical answer or response, that's telling others, that's telling the world who you belong to. And Peter also says, to, in addition to preparing your mind, he said to keep sober. This word is describing having balance, ha- having self-control. The word describes what one loses when one is inebriated. That's your ability to walk, your ability to make sound judgment, your ability to communicate or think clearly, to not be in control of oneself because of intoxication. Peter tells us to be sober so as to walk with clarity and understanding so that we are not confused in our Christian walk, so that we are not practically inebriated in our Christian walk. And often what accompanies procrastination is an attitude that just bumbles along, doing whatever because nothing really matters. I'll get to that when I, when I need to. And this attitude has become very prevalent in the church because the church has, in so many places, strayed from biblical authority. She has looked to all kinds of sources, all kinds of advice and instruction on what she ought to think and how she ought to conduct herself or how she ought to walk. She's conducted, she's consulted pagan and worldly philosophies. The church looks to the world's experts on church growth and so now treats the church like it's a business or a corporation. The church has consulted those who are outside the church, asking what should the church do. Kind of silly when you think about it that way. The church has become, many Christians have become spiritually inebriated. They they are not sober-minded. And as a result, there are a million different ideas. There are a million different theories 
or philosophies on how we ought to conduct ourselves as churches. What are we supposed to be doing? How should we be doing it? Why should we be doing it? Should we still be doing it? Each voice trying to outshout the others, each voice offering strategies and suggestions and advice, each voice trying to say that the others are wrong and that they have the numbers, they have the statistics to, to, to validate that, that they should be followed. Peter says, don't do this. Be sober-minded in your Christian walk. That is a part of your worship to God. Have clarity and self-control in discerning what the Word of God says so that you can have clarity and self-control in your thinking, so that you can have clarity and self-control in your Christian walk. Being sober-minded and prepared for action is a part of your worship to God as you fix your hope on Christ. And that's the first point Peter makes that is an element of your worship to God in your salvation. Second point that we'll look at, verses 14 to 16, is that you worship God in your salvation. Sorry. You worship God in your salvation by exhibiting holiness. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, you yourselves be holy in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, because I am holy. The second way in which we worship God in our salvation is by exhibiting holiness. By exhibiting holiness, by having a practice that is reflective or correspondent to our position in Christ. Now, if we were to flip this passage and just read it cold, read you know, just just pluck it out and just read it with with, with no context, you would come across be, being called as a, a as a child. And you might think that's a pejorative. You might think that is a derogatory thing. Who wants to be called a child? After all, I mean, doesn't, doesn't religion just exist to brainwash us, to keep us as ignorant sheep in the sheep pen? As key, to, to keep us as kitties at the, as children at the kitty table? Well, but remember what Peter's basis is for this instruction. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you have been made a child of God. And because you're a child, you can expect an inheritance from him. You've been made his child through regeneration. You've been born again by the supernatural work of the Spirit. You've had your heart of stone taken out. You've had your heart of flesh put in. And having new hearts, where you were once characterized, where you were once qualified as being children of wrath, as being children of obedience, now as God's children, you're qualified as something entirely different. You're not children of disobedience, but children of obedience. So it's actually, it's a positive thing. It's a commendation that Peter is saying. He's saying that as children of God, as obedient children, you worship God. And what does that obedience look like? Well, Peter gives us two, two practical, very practical illustrations. He says, who to 
not be like, and then he says who to be like. And let's start with the negative one because it comes first. So who, who does Peter say not to be like? He says, do you remember the guy that you were before Jesus? Do you, do you remember him? Do you remember what he sounded like? Remember the way he used to talk, the things he used to do, the places he used to go? Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be that person you used to be. And in Colossians 3, Paul goes into a list of, of quali- uh, qualifications of the old man that characterize what, what men and women are like before Christ. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. And then in Galatians 5, he talks about the the fruit of the flesh. Again, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and others. These are the qualities that used to describe what every one of us was at one point. This is the guy or the gal that we were. Peter says, don't be like that. Don't conform to what you used to be like. Be different. Don't, don't be like that guy. Don't look like him. Don't sound like him. Be so different that when people who knew you back then, when they see you now, they go, wow, something, has, something happened to that guy because he's, he's not the same guy. She's not the same gal. You worship God by exhibiting a practice, by showing a practice that is consistent with your position in Christ. Forgiven. Pardoned. United to the Son of God. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Holiness. Holiness in in respects to not being... Holiness is a part of our worship to to God in respect to not being like what we were saved from. We were saved because we were not holy. Don't be like the guy that you used to be or the girl you used to be. That's the negative, who not to be like. Now here's the positive, who to be like. And who do you think that is? Who are Christians supposed to imitate? Amen. The one who saved you, the one who called you. God. God himself is the standard for our conduct. And this isn't anything new, because Peter, you see, you look at, look at Peter's reasoning, look at Peter's argument. He goes back to the Old Testament, and he, said, he quotes something that was said, time after time after time, and we could spend all morning looking at all the different references. It is so scattered throughout the law. It is so prevalent in the Old Testament that you could not miss it if you tried. That God's people, the people whom God saved, were to be like their God. You shall be holy because I am holy. God's people were to reflect the God that who made them his own precious, precious people. 
they were to be fair and honest because that is what God is like. They were to hate sin and love righteousness and to love justice because that is what God is like. They were to show compassion and gentleness and many other things, the, not the least of them being holiness because that is what their God is like. And just in the same way that Israel was expected to imitate the likeness of their God that saved them, Peter says, you, you be holy because the God who called you is holy. Be like the one who saved you. That's the second way that we worship God in our salvation. We be, we imitate him. We be like him. The third expression of worship to God in our salvation is the exercise of honorable conduct. You worship God by exercising honorable conduct. Verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, don't get caught up on that word fear. Because when we think of, when we first read that fear, the first thing we think of is that fear is a bad thing. We don't, we don't like fear. We don't like talking about the things we're afraid of. We don't like facing the things we're afraid of. But looking at that word fear and how it's used biblically, it means reverence. It means respect. It's not talking about a mistrust or an uncertainty in which some of us may be afraid of spiders or heights. But this is talking about having a safeguard in your mind against being presumptuous and careless with the almighty, transcendent God. You're not arrogant or presumptuous in what you think you can expect from him. Let's look at what Peter is saying here. We've talked about the reality that Christians are they've been made children of God. We who were once enemies, we've been reconciled into being his friends. We were once orphans, now his heirs. And there's a there's a lot of rich things that the Christian has in Christ, and we've 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 looked at that so far in the text. What do you imagine happens when someone who is told all those things and then you over time, you know, you inject a little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance? What, does that, what do you think that would produce over time? I, I mean, Scripture says that we, have, that we have the spirit in us that calls God Abba, Daddy. We are that close to God on, on good t- terms that we can call our he- God our Heavenly Father. And over time with a little bit with a little bit of pride and a little less humility i think we can kind of become that like that girl in the willy wonka movie who you know the i want it now daddy i want it now and she's so arrogant and she goes around with no thought of the consequences of her actions and she's just consumed by these illusions of grandeur Peter's saying, don't be presumptuous like that. Well, he didn't know who that little girl was, but Peter says, don't 
be like that. Don't be like that little whiny, arrogant little. Don't be presumptuous. Don't take the comforting truth that you have been brought near to God for granted. Don't be presumptuous with your relationship to him. And his reasoning is that if you're so close, if you're so close to God that you call him daddy, if you're so close to him that you call him father, then you are close to enough to him that you ought to know that he is also an impartial judge who judges each one's man according uh, each man's work, each man's conduct, that he is a righteous judge. And this isn't, I'm not talking about justification. I'm not talking about being judged and losing your salvation. But I am talking about matters of discipline. Because scripture tells us that God disciplines those he, he loves. We don't get a free pass to do whatever we want we don't get to be like that little girl in the movie, demanding, being arrogant, demanding again and being presumptuous. And We don't get to be like that. Peter says, let your Christian walk be seasoned with respect. Let your Christian walk have reverence for who God is. And there are many Christians who, who don't do this. I think, I think that largely that's that's a result. The the pendulum has overswung because in in generations past, I think there was an overemphasis on your Christian walk needs to be marked by rigid adherence to the law. You need to have reverence for God, and you need to revere Him now, right? The some people talk about the fundamentalists like that. I think the pendulum, and there was absolutely no warmth. There was absolutely no intimacy. There was absolutely no sense of comfort that you had been brought near and you've been reconciled to God. God is this holy, he is so holy and, and sovereign and transcendent that you dare not approach him. But the reality is in Christ we have been, we can approach him, we can come near. But I think the pendulum has Swung, and we now emphasize the closeness and the daddiness of God. And we've, I think many have lost that sense of respect and awe. I've even seen shirts that says, Jesus is my homeboy. You're talking about the transcendent, holy, eternal God who is so holy that he killed his own son so that sinners might live. Peter says, don't be presumptuous in your relationship. Don't take your salvation for granted. Scripture cautions us to be sober-minded in our walk. And I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were saved. I but they thought they could get away with just a little bit of sin. They lied to the church. They lied about how much they were giving. And they were judged by the one who judges impartially. That means that he, God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't give free passes in his judgments. He judged according to each one's work. We worship God 
in our salvation by not overemphasizing the intimacy we have with him at the expense of recognizing and professing and living in accordance to his holiness and his righteousness. You honor God, you worship God with your honorable conduct. So we've seen today that the Christian, that you and me, we worship God by fixing our hope on the one whom the Father has sent, Jesus Christ. Let us indeed fix our hope. Let us be sober-minded. Let us prepare our minds for action in our Christian walk. And let us worship God by imitating his character and repenting of sin daily. Whenever, whenever that old man, whenever the old man pops his head up, you whack him back down. Paul, Paul says, put him to death. And let us worship God by not being presumptuous in the grace that we have been mercifully given. Let's pray. Father, when we think about the price that you paid to save us, the price you paid to redeem us, when we think of the inheritance that you've promised us, the grace that you have freely bestowed upon us, we, our hearts abound and we long to give you the hope that you right, rightly deserve. Help us to live longingly for your grace that will be revealed to us in Christ. Let, let the appearance of Christ be so beautiful in our, in our minds. Help us to be holy. Help us to be like you in all that we do. Give us the strength to repent of our sin and help, help us to repent of pride and anything that causes us to sin. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this body of believers. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for Christ. Amen.